Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. In segment three, we're going to discuss the sudden death of NFL Player Association Executive Director Gene Upshaw, who died of pancreatic cancer this past Wednesday night. Upshaw, who was just diagnosed with cancer last weekend, was a Hall of Fame player with the Oakland Raiders, but he's best known for his shrewd business dealings on behalf of the NFL players since 1983. There's many layers to cover with the story, and we'll tackle those layers in segment three. In segment four, Owen Rankin. He's the vice president of corporate equity and Olympic partnerships for Johnson & Johnson. Rankin is the man responsible for overseeing Johnson & Johnson's 70-plus million-dollar global sponsorship of the Beijing Olympics. If you want to hear from a key decision-maker why his company chose to spend millions on an Olympic sponsorship and what companies sponsored, sponsoring these Olympics hope to get out of their sponsorship, you should find my conversation with Owen Rankin of Johnson & Johnson very interesting. A couple of other notes. Visit my Sports Business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm joined in studio by Nathan Roach. Nathan, Gene Upshaw's sudden death really leaves a huge void for the NFL Players Association. And with the work stoppage looming in 2010, the NFL players will have to fill big shoes. Let's remember that by the year 2010, the NFL may be a $10 billion a year business and the NFL players are currently getting 60% of that pie. So Upshaw did an amazing job on behalf of the players. Well, yeah, and he was such a vital part of this uh, 2010. It's going to be really interesting to see now, first off, who replaces him. But second of all, what's going to happen now in 2010? He's very, he was really an advocate for the players. So it'll be interesting to see who replaces him. And the unique thing about Upshaw is even though he represented the players, he was so well-respected by the commissioners, Paul Tagliabue and now Roger Goodell of the NFL, and then the owners. I mean, you saw owner after owner coming out this week after his sudden death praising him and saying he saw both sides of the issues. He wasn't so set in his ways that he couldn't see the owner's point of view. And that's a rare thing where someone who's the head of a player's association can make deals and negotiate and actually say, look, I can see the other side's point of views. That's a rare thing. We've got lots of headlines coming up. More Olympic numbers. NBC still getting good ratings down slightly. We'll tell you about those. And then possibly... The best name ever for an athlete for marketing. Who is it? We'll tell you who. Coming up next in headlines, you're listening to Sports Business Radio. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training, sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. 
But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline, sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit warsawcenter.com for more information. Headline number one, NBC is averaging a 17.129 national rating. That's about 29.3 million viewers for its primetime telecast of the Beijing Olympics so far. That's up 8.2% from Athens, and it's the second best rating through the second Tuesday of a non-U.S. summer game since an 18.1 for the 92 Barcelona games. In a nutshell, the Beijing Olympics are on pace to be the most watched Olympics ever. They're now within 6 million viewers of the 209 million viewers that tuned in to watch the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. And now when I talk about these numbers, I'm talking specifically about U.S. viewers. Obviously, worldwide, the numbers are much bigger. With NBC's ratings exceeding projections, the net has sold $25 million in ads since the start of the Beijing Games. Nathan, when the game started, NBC announced that they've reached a $1 billion plateau in ad sales. They paid $894 million for the rights. So you don't have to be a math genius to figure out you paid $894. Now you've made over a billion, a very good investment. But NBC's numbers are down a little bit in the last week because Michael Phelps isn't swimming anymore, and their ratings really spiked when he became must-see TV as he chased the eight gold medals. Well, none of that surprises me. The ratings don't surprise me, but that's the beauty of the Olympics, is Michael Phelps has done, and yes, he was the signature event, but there's also all these, I mean, this week we saw Kerry Walsh and Misty May Trainer play, a lot of people talking about that at the water cooler, so just as some big event like swimming ends, it always seems like there's something else to watch. You know, I was watching ping pong the other day. I'll watch anything that comes on the TV with regard to the Olympics and just sitting at the office listening to some of my coworkers, it sounds like they'll do the same, especially with this Olympics. Our next headline, I talked about this last year, and I even mentioned it on my blog again. There was not one athlete that had more pressure on him than Lu Shang. Lu Shang was the face of these Olympics for Nike, and this week in track and field in the 110-meter hurdles, Lu Shang didn't even make it to the finals. He pulled up lame. You would have thought that There was a a president or a minister assassinated in China. The whole country was in mourning. They had such high hopes for him. And Nike, you know, really had their hopes dashed because they had made Liu Shang probably the focal point along with the U.S. men's basketball team, Kobe Bryant and LeBron James, of all of their marketing efforts in China. On the flip side of that, Nathan, Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt this week won the men's 200-meter dash, his second gold medal and world record of the Beijing Games. And U.K. cable company Virgin Media has approached Bolt to be the face of its super-fast broadband service, this according to the Manchester Guardian. This is the fastest man in the world now. He's six foot six, and you would think he's going to have a lot of opportunities, but is there, has there ever been a better name, Bolt? Lightning bolt. This guy's fast. I mean, this has all kinds of opportunities. But, Nathan, if I were the San Diego Chargers, the nickname, the Bolts, this guy's 6'6". He runs the 40-yard dash at 21 miles an hour, the fastest it's ever been run. Can you imagine a 6'6 wide receiver who runs the 40-yard dash faster than anyone? 
and his last name is Bolt, imagine how many jerseys the San Diego Chargers would sell with Bolt on the back of the jersey. That's got to happen. And he has a great personality. I mean, this guy is charismatic. He's fun to watch. He did some questionable things in the 100. But I love but his little pose, his little, like, lightning bolt yeah, pose. Yeah, he's got he personality. He makes, he's a perfect marketing athlete. I mean, there's nothing better. His name, his personality. Well, and then, I mean, how about he's running the 100-meter dash, and he, like, slows down at the end, and he's still set a world record and still blows away the field. He's got a little bit of charisma, like you said, and I just can't see – I think Michael Phelps and Usain Bolt will be the two marketing darlings of these games when it's all said and done. Our next headline, this is one we've talked about. The International Olympic Committee will officially investigate whether the Chinese women's gymnastic team that won the gold medal had underage athletes. I mean, look, the NBC reporters, uh, anyone who's watching this, you look at some of the young ladies on the gymnastics team and they look like they're eight or nine years old compared to... The U.S. women and, and some of the other women, you can just tell, you know, it's night and day looking at the Chinese gymnastic women and, and the other women. I know your mom is working closely with the gymnasts uh, in uh, Beijing. Yeah, my mom is over there working with NBC, and I asked her about this when all the reports started to come out. My mom's been involved in gymnastics and Team USA for a long period of time, and she completely agreed. There is definitely some questionable ages on that Chinese team, and uh, we'll see. Hopefully the truth uh, will come out here. I mean, it's kind of the opposite. It used to be like, you know, you looked at athletes and you're like, God, that guy didn't look 12 years old. He's got a mustache and a beard, but, you know, he's pretending to be 16. <laughs> or, World Series. Or, yeah, exactly. But this is the opposite. This is like, you know, young women who are supposedly, uh, you know, 16, 17 years old. And I don't know. It doesn't make sense on any level, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know how big of a, a story it's going to be. Our next headline, NBA Commissioner David Stern said the league's plans for China include a separate league that would be NBA-affiliated or NBA-sponsored, but it would be independent from the current NBA. Now, we've talked, there's never been a league that has done a better job of marketing themselves in China than the NBA. When I was there last September, you don't see the NFL, you don't see Major League Baseball, you don't really see any presence for U.S. sports, except for some Tiger Woods signage, except for the NBA. It's everywhere. And now you look at what the current Redeem team is doing over there and the popularity of Kobe Bryant and LeBron James, and it's just the table is now set for the NBA and for basketball to just do booming business in China. And, you know, now uh, Stern also said this week that they're in ongoing dialogue with Chinese authorities about installing 800,000 baskets in villages across the country. Just like we talked to Jack Nicholas a few months ago about building golf courses all around the world and introducing the game of golf to people, this is essentially what David Stern and his league are doing in China. Well, look at how popular the game was when the Redeem team played China. So many people tuned in. It was one of what well, it was the biggest, most watched sporting event in the history of television. There's obviously an interest for basketball, and I, and I think that this is the next step for the NBA. Our next headline, also on the NBA, the settlement between the city of Seattle and Oklahoma City NBA team owner Clay Bennett's professional basketball club finally was closed out this week with the city receiving a check for $45 million from the group. The sides came to terms on July 2nd during a trial in U.S. District Court and were waiting on a citizen initiative regarding termination of the key arena lease. But no organized effort was mounted to gather the required 15,000 signatures by an August 15th deadline. This is old news. 
We knew that Oklahoma City was the Sonics were going to Oklahoma City. They're probably going to be the Thunder now. Now it's official. Basketball is dead in the Emerald City until they get a new team or maybe forever. Well, that's that's what I was just going to say is that now it's up to the city of Seattle to get an arena deal done if they have want to have any shot at getting an expansion team in the next five years. Well, and they couldn't years. even get 15,000 signatures, so I don't have high hope for NBA basketball in Seattle for the foreseeable future. Our last headline of the week, the MLS Galaxy this week, named former Red Bulls coach and sporting director Bruce Arena as their GM and coach after former president and GM Alexi Lawless and coach Rude Goulet parted ways with the club last week. Arena will oversee all soccer operations, including the first team, reserve, and academy teams, and youth development. Arena, who stepped down as U.S. men's national team coach in 2006, led the D.C. United to two MLS championships in 96 and 97. And don't forget, the Galaxy have David Beckham on their roster. So it will be interesting to see how Bruce Arena and David Beckham are able to coexist. Obviously, the Galaxy has invested a ton of money into uh, David Beckham. So you would think, hopefully, the owners of the Galaxy got Arena and Beckham together and kind of got Beckham's blessing on this. And they said, all right, can you two work together? Fine, let's go down the road. I don't want to knock the MLS because I love soccer, but uh, he's certainly going to be the busiest GM in the MLS. I'm sure there's not as nearly as much going on with the other teams as there will be and continues to be with the LA Galaxy. All right, coming up next, NFL Player Association Executive Director Gene Upshaw, who has led the players Union since 1983. He died this past week at his home in Lake Tahoe, California, from pancreatic cancer. He was diagnosed only a week ago. He's already gone. We are going to talk about his legacy. We're going to talk about what's next for the NFL Players Association. We could have a work stoppage looming in 2010. Without their leader now, the Players Association has to make some quick decisions. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. My guest is Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Let's go back to the year 2000, the year before you bought the Mavericks. They were 40 and 42. Fan interest was pretty lukewarm. When you bought this team, what did you see in this team? What was the potential that you saw to get them to where they are today? Probably none. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. I think the reason why we have a BCS-type system in Division 1A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in Division 1A feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football. Read the Sports Business blog and listen to SBR On Demand at sportsbusinessradio.com. See, I think that's the big thing. Sports Business Radio, Saturday. <laughs> Or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. This is Sports Business Radio. We are back, and it's a very sad week for the sports world, specifically the NFL, Nathan. NFL Players Association Executive Director Gene Upshaw, who's led the Players Union since 1983, and that's after a Hall of Fame career with the Oakland Raiders. He died this week at the age of 63. And he was diagnosed just last weekend with pancreatic cancer. And then Wednesday night at his home in Lake Tahoe, he was already dead. No one in his professional life, not NFL Players Association General Counsel Richard Berthelison, Upshaw's agent, 
uh, CAA's Tom Condon, and past NFL Players Association President Trace Armstrong. No one knew that he was even sick. This was a guy who was a strong guy who, uh, you know, never let people see if he was hurting, and he's gone now. And this is a huge void for the NFL Players Association. Let me just talk a little bit about the legacy of Gene Upshaw, if I may, for a moment. I mean, first of all, um, you know, he took this league 1983. Players made decent money, but now, I mean, this is the healthiest league in all of sports by a long shot with the TV money, with all the money they're making from stadium revenues. Basically, this is a $10 billion a year business. There's no other U.S. sports league that's even close to that. And the players get 60% of that pot. So he's gone to bat for his players to the point where there may be a work stoppage in 2010 because the owners have said, look, this doesn't work for our business model. You know, they didn't really fault Gene Upshaw, but, you know, he did such a good job negotiating on behalf of the players that, you know, this is the world that the owners now live in. But this is, it's just a huge loss for the NFL in general. We talk about him starting back in 1983. He's now been an advocate for those players who are obviously retired but that played back in the 80s for their medical benefits. We heard about this about a year ago, players that were getting hurt, players that had medical conditions, and the NFL was not taking care of them. Gene Upshaw was a huge advocate for leading that charge for players to get medical benefits. So he's not only an advocate for the players and a representative for the players right now, but players that are retired from years ago. So the 11-member NFL Players Association Executive Committee appointed after Upshaw's death this week, Union General Counsel Richard Berthelsen. I'm probably butchering his name. I apologize for that. He's the acting director of the NFL Players Association in the wake of Upshaw's death. Uh, There was a conference call this week, and many people think that uh, Berthelsen may be the longtime solution as the replacement for Gene Upshaw. There are other names that have been mentioned. Uh, Tom Condon himself, who is Upshaw's agent, has been one of those names that's been mentioned. But, you know, as I said in the opening segment, interesting reactions from around the NFL this week. Not only were players saddened by the loss, but owners and even the past Commissioner Paul Tagliabue and current Commissioner Roger Goodell came out with just, you know, so much respect Um Paul Tagliabue said it's a very, very sad day. He was a leader without peers and a dear friend who I will never forget. Robert Smith, I thought, the NFL Players Association, uh, he was a former rep for them. He had the best quote. He said, Gene was an incredible leader. Gene had an incredible talent for making people see the larger picture and understanding the entire context of their actions and their words and the direction of the union. When you look at You know, Donald Fear is the Major League Baseball Player Association union leader. Billy Hunter is the union leader for the NBA. I don't even think it's close. Gene Upshaw was by far, if you look at the three major professional sports leagues, Gene Upshaw did the best job for his players, bar none. Oh, absolutely. And you talk about who's going to be his successor next. And Condon's name, of course, was mentioned there. And I think what was so important and and should be important when they're finding someone to replace him is that Gene Upshaw was a player. He was a player for a number of years, a Hall of Fame player, and he knows what it's like to be on the field. He knows what it's like to do, deal with contracts himself. And so I think anytime you put someone in that position, I think they're better off if they have a history of being on the field and, and being a player themselves. 
Now, I mean, Upshaw definitely had criticism, and there were even rumors in the last several months that there were people within the players' union that were kind of organizing this ouster. We've talked about it on this show. Upshaw said he was not going to step aside. He had no plans to step aside, and he said he really wanted to get through this next labor deal, which, again, looms in 2010. And now it's going to be interesting because, again, you know, Roger Goodell, he hasn't really been to the bargaining table before. And now Gene Upshaw has gone. So there's going to be two new people at the bargaining table for the NFL on the side of the owners and on the side of the players come the next negotiation. And, you know, I think the fans, they don't really care about any of this. They just want to see a deal done because they don't want to see any games lost. And most people say, look, again, you're a $10 billion a year business. If you can't find a way to make everyone happy and split up that pie, then you guys don't deserve uh, to be the, the biggest league in America and, and you're selfish, greedy guys. Well, it's just like Major League Baseball. We've talked about the, the strike with Major League Baseball before. And years ago when they went on strike, it took a long time for them to get the fans back. And it'd be even worse for the NFL if this happened. And I agree. Anytime I hear about Major League Baseball, NFL players, or, or NBA basketball players that can't get a deal done when the business and the dollars behind it are, you, you just blows your mind. You're like, how can these athletes not get something finished here? Okay, so looking ahead for the NFL, who are the possible replacements for Gene Upshaw? And again, he's got some big shoes. He's been there since 1983. He had great relationships with the owners, with the NFL executives, the owners, and uh, you know the commissioners, everyone. Let's go down this list. Former NFL Players Association President Trace Armstrong. So he's a former Bear, Dolphin, and Raiders defensive end. Um, He's not only a former player, but he has a good business background. He was the president during some of the best growth for the league and union. And during his tenure as president, the league brought in new stadiums, sources of revenue, and uh, lots more fans. So Armstrong would provide some of the same vision that Upshaw had for the future of the league. There's a lot of people that think Trace Armstrong is kind of the leader in the clubhouse. NFL Players Association General Counsel Richard Berthelsen, he's the guy who has been named the interim replacement for Gene Upshaw. He was immediately appointed interim director this week. He was Upshaw's top lawyer, so he's the perfect person to get the union through its toughest period in more than 20 years uh, he knows the workers in the office and the players. He's been around Upshaw. I mean, it's kind of like, I'm not going to say he's an Upshaw clone because he's very different personality-wise. He's like but, Goodell, kind of. Well, but he's a guy who's been around Upshaw enough where he knows exactly who everyone is. He knows all the players. He's you know he's kind of uh, sucked all the information from Upshaw's brain and you know could probably continue with as close to Gene Upshaw-like success as anyone. NFL Players Association counselor uh, or counsel Jeffrey Kessler, he knows the inner workings of the NFL salary cap. Uh, he also knows the NBA salary cap because he helped with the installation of both of those. He's very aggressive. Um, he's probably more aggressive than anyone else on this list. And um, he was a close friend of Upshaw's as well. So he knows a lot about what's been going on. Now, here's where things could get interesting if they want to go outside the box a little bit. Former NFL Player Association President Troy Vincent, the former defensive back, a veteran of four NFL teams, was a great player. But he's also well-spoken. He's a successful business person in the Philadelphia area. And 
you know, when there were rumors a year or so ago about uh, Upshaw being ousted or even the fact that Upshaw should have a, a succession plan, Troy Vincent was the guy, Nathan, who was really mentioned uh, prominently when they discussed that. Well, you know, I think going back to who should, you know, who might fit the role the best, you know, I think a lawyer, someone with a law background, a law degree, like, how do you pronounce his name? I don't want to dice it like you have. Berthelsen. <laughs> Berthelsen has. Is or impo- Kessler. Or, or Kessler is important because you're dealing with contracts. You're dealing with negotiations. It's the same reason that agents who have a law degree make such great agents is because they understand how the law and the contracts work. Another very bright former player is former Vikings running back Robert Smith. This is a guy who studied medicine and astronomy. He also was a guy that was pushed by some players and some groups to, hey, if Gene Upshaw retires anytime soon, Robert Smith, uh, just like Troy Vincent, was a guy that was mentioned prominently. Um, Very good business sense. I personally think whenever I've listened to Robert Smith, who does some work for uh, ESPN, very, very bright guy, very well-spoken guy. And also, he's a minority. And, you know, let's just call it as it is that, you know, it doesn't hurt when most of your league is made up of minority players to have someone who has that voice leading them. And Robert Smith is a very, very strong voice, very bright gentleman, and I think would make a a good replacement for uh, Gene Upshaw. And he's young. So, you know, if you you look, Gene Upshaw has been the guy since 1983. If you want to find another young, bright guy and put him in the role and hope that He's in place for the next 20, 25 years. I think Robert Smith makes a lot of sense. The guy who is kind of the wild card, former Chiefs offensive lineman and probably the most powerful agent in the sports industry, definitely in the NFL, Tom Condon from CAA. Tom Condon is Eli and Peyton Manning's agent. Um, You know, he's done really successful contracts for many, many players. It would be interesting would he leave that lucrative, lucrative business to become the NFL Players Association executive director, which I've got to believe wouldn't pay him nearly as much money as what he's making now as an agent? No way, but at this point, money, to, I would think, is not an issue. Now it's an ego thing. Can he get to that next that plat, that next level of egotism, and I think that this is definitely a step up for him. These guys are all arrogant guys. They want to they be the leader of something, and here's a perfect opportunity. Well, I can tell you, of all the names on that list, if I was an owner, if I was Roger Goodell, the last two guys that I'd want to see would be Jeffrey Kessler or Tom Condon. Very tough negotiators replace Gene Upshaw. We'll see how this turns out. They've got to make a decision soon. All right, coming up next, Owen Rankin, he's the vice president of corporate equity and Olympic sponsorship for Johnson & Johnson, a Fortune 500 company, one of the iconic brands in the United States. They spent $72 million, roughly, on a sponsorship, a global sponsorship for these Beijing Olympics. We're going to discuss that with Owen Rankin. That's coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for a place to have dinner with family, friends, or business associates, there's only one restaurant on my list. Morton's The Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. In its 28th year in business, Morton serves only the finest quality foods, featuring USDA prime-age beef, fresh seafood, hand-picked produce, and decadent desserts prepared to perfection. Not to mention the award-winning wine list. 
When my destination is Morton's, the best is always on the menu. And they treat me like a VIP during every visit, whether in the dining room or the private boardrooms. With almost 75 restaurants conveniently located around the world, Morton's is the gold standard when it comes to steakhouses. To find the Morton's nearest you or to make a reservation, go online to mortons.com. Morton's, the best steak anywhere and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Owen Rankin. He's the Vice President of Corporate Equity and Olympic Sponsorship with Johnson & Johnson. Owen, thanks for taking time here on Sports Business Radio. Great to talk to you, Brian. So, Owen, Johnson & Johnson's been around for 120 years, but this is your first time as a global sponsor of the Olympic Games. What led to your decision to become a global sponsor? I think it, it started with the power of China and being able to um, have uh, an opportunity to sort of tell our story to the people of China, and the Olympic Games just gave us such a great platform to do that. Yeah, I mean, we read so much about the brands that are top sponsors like your own and how many years in advance of the Games they've been spending in China kind of preparing for this moment. How long have you been in China trying to uh, cultivate uh, your presence there? Well, we've been in China for more than 20 years, so we started in the mid-'80s. Uh, we signed our Olympic deal here in 2005, and we uh, started activating against that deal here uh, almost immediately after we signed the deal. So we've been working here in China around the Olympics for three years, but it's just a continuation of what we've been doing in China for more than 20 years. Is someone like yourself, who I'm sure has studied the landscape in China very carefully, how would you best describe it to our listeners? I mean, we know what the United States consumer is like, but how would you disgu- describe uh, the Chinese landscape right now? I think that the hardest part about China is there's not one single description that fits. I mean, we're sitting in the middle of Beijing. It's a first world city. It looks very much like uh, cities um, throughout the world, you know, capital cities throughout the world. But if you drive 10 or 20 miles outside of the city, you're in a, you're in a um, you know, 50 years ago, if you drive another 50 miles outside that city, you're in, uh, you know, 100 years ago. So the thought of one China or the ability to um, think of China in um, one set of uh, um, circumstances or, or as one country is just not real. So you have to really think about China as multiple layers from a business standpoint, ranging from, you know, sophisticated first world consumers all the way down to incredibly rural people who, for the most part, still, still can't afford your products. How familiar are the people in China with the Johnson & Johnson brand from the research you've done? We're, we're very lucky. Our main business in China, just like in the U.S., or what we, we're mostly known for, is our baby business. And that baby business um, you know, works with hospitals throughout the country. So most people know us first here as a baby company. They've seen us in the hospitals when they've had their baby. And then our other businesses follow along. You know, you're right about the the Chinese landscape there. I was there last September. I spent a week in Beijing, and then I went on to uh, Shanghai. And I was just struck when I walked down the street at the number of people that are in these cities. I mean, you know, it's a country of 1.3 billion people, so it's roughly six times the size of the United States. What's been most striking to you as you've uh, walked down the streets in Beijing? Well, I think um, the thing that's always striking in China is the ability for them to put uh, people against any problem to, to solve it. So um, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of volunteers 
are working during the games. Um, when they have construction issues, they can bring in significant numbers of people to move things quickly. So it's just sort of the scale and the ability to, to um, bring resources to bear in terms of uh, numbers of people to solve things. You know, these Olympics, since they're taking place in China, have not come without their controversies, and there's been some political overtones. Um, I just am curious, you know, Johnson & Johnson, a major brand, has there been any kind of uh, lashing out or pushback from any of your consumers for Johnson & Johnson being involved with these games in China? I think every game has its own set of controversies, and this game is no different. I think that what people need to understand is the Olympics can play a small role in moving countries to, um, to either modernize or, or change um, policies. And I think you need to, to sort of put in context how much the Olympic Games by themselves can do. I think China's on the path to change, and it's changing more quickly because the, of the Olympic Games, but it's still going to take a lot of time for um, you know, what, what you or I or, or people in North America or Western Europe would think that China should be like. It's going to take a while for them to get there. I mean, I just think about your company, and I, you talk about change. I, you have some amazing products, especially uh, in the medical realm, and, and I would think that you have so much to offer uh, as far as technology goes over in China. Have you learned that uh, your products are probably very well received over there? The, the health system here is, is emerging. The health system here is continuing to grow, and our products, both from a um, technology but also from a, you know, really helping people's lives, uh, get better, have been well-received, and we've spent a lot of our time uh, educating medical professionals here about the products and then also helping educate consumers about um, health care uh, products and healthcare care choices that they could make. My guest is Owen Rankin. He's the Vice President of Corporate Equity and Olympic Sponsorship with Johnson & Johnson. Johnson & Johnson is a top-level sponsor for the Olympic Games. Owen, there's always the debate here, shelling out increasing amounts of money versus the potential payback um, when you're sponsoring events, by my research, companies have paid $866 million or an average of $72 million apiece to sponsor the Turin and Beijing Games. That's almost one-third more than the $663 million total paid back with the Salt Lake City and the Athens Games in 2002 and 2004, and it's up from $579 million from the Nagano-Sydney cycle in 1998 to 2000. So rights fees for sponsorships going up. Um, how do you justify your expenditure, and how do you gauge your return on investment? Well, I think the, the, um, the, the, num- the numbers that you have are numbers that I'm not familiar with, but I'm sure they're accurate. Um, but you have to set your objectives clearly up front, uh, which we did. Um, you know, China, is, an, as I said before, is a critically important market for us, and the opportunity to tell the Johnson & Johnson story to the people of China on the Olympic stage something that we viewed as a as a worthwhile investment. We're very pleased with what we've been able to do so far. Um, the games have been very successful. So I think each company has to look at it themselves and decide, um, does it achieve their objectives? Uh, is it worth the, the investment? And do they think they can get the return? And I think we feel very good about what we've been able to do here in China. Uh, I saw a survey, 1,500 Chinese city dwellers earlier this year. Only 15% could name two of the 12 global sponsors, and just 40% could name one sponsor. And then you add to the confusion because there's 21 additional national-level sponsors. Do you ever feel like there's just too many sponsors and you know the less is more would be better here and I'd feel better about being a sponsor if I was one of a few instead of one of many? Yeah, and I think that's the IOC tries to do that with their global sponsorship uh, here in China. There have been um, 
there's a, a whole uh, set of tiers of sponsors, and, and there is a lot of activity. And part of that, again, is driven by the passion in China for the games where people who normally wouldn't want to be sponsors have decided to come in and be sponsors. So there is a lot of pressure. I think it just puts more of a burden on the sponsors to make themselves stand out in a way that's that's um, true to who they are. So it, it's easy just to, to put rings. If you're a sponsor, it's easy to put rings on things and put them on your packages and put them on your commercials, but then you're just one of the many. And I think that if, you, if you're smart and you can figure out strategic ways to connect yourselves to the Olympic movement, uh, you can make yourself stand out. Now, Owen, you have a number of iconic brands under the Johnson & Johnson umbrella. Um, how are you going about your advertising there in China? Is it just the Johnson & Johnson brand, or are you uh, naming some of those iconic uh, subsidiary brands? Our businesses tend to, to be um, autonomous in how they want, want to uh, market and leverage their business. So here in China, each of our individual operating units has made decisions about how they want to um, leverage the sponsorship. And then in addition, we've built a, an umbrella um, campaign that talks to the values of the corporation. So the, the corporate campaign talks to values of caring and trust and, and being in the health space. And then our individual brands and our individual operating companies will decide whether um, there's a great opportunity for a Neutrogena or a great opportunity for AccuView contact lenses or a great opportunity for some of our medical device products. And then they'll build that connection directly between their brand and the Olympic movement. Yeah, i got to tell you, I love your TV spots that I've seen on NBC, the one with uh, Colin Jones, I believe, the swimmer. Um, you know, I really liked the, the tone of the spot, and he was thanking his mom for being so supportive. And then uh, your Hearts of Gold program, I've been very impressed with that. Maybe you can talk about uh, the TV spots and the Hearts of Gold program for a moment. Yeah, they're two of our most favorite programs. The, the campaign with the athletes um, represents a, a universal feeling that you know, when you talk to athletes here, they just uh, they talk about the people who helped get them to the Olympic Games and Quite often it's a parent and especially a mom, and um, a lot of times they haven't taken the time to thank their their, their supporters who got them there. We, and we thought it would be a great way to link um, the mother-baby company right into the um, the athletes who are competing. So that's, a, that's a, a, a very important program for us. The Hearts of Gold program is an amazing program. Um, it's got a couple of parts to it. And one that you probably heard most about is our medal grant, where if athletes sign up to work for – um, work, work with Right to Play, which is a wonderful organization, and they, they win a medal, will donate money on their behalf, which is great. And then uh, we also have been distributing um, these, these two-part bracelets here in, in Beijing to all of the athletes. Uh, one is for them to, um, to, to honor them for what they've been able to achieve and what they've been able to um, uh, do to get here. And the other is a, 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 a bracelet they, need, they, they should give to someone who helped uh, get them to the game, so whether it's a coach or a parent or a friend, someone who inspired them to get here. So it's a, a small act of caring, and, and with that, we hope that it will help uh, athletes turn from sort of just elite athletes to Olympians and, and sort of you know, take on some of the Olympic values. No, it's great stuff. It's one of my favorite programs that I've seen. Uh, congratulations on that. I want to ask you, you know, as someone who is a high-ranking official at a major company, um, I want to ask you about the marketability of Michael Phelps. I mean, Michael Phelps just won eight gold medals. He's the most decorated athlete in Olympic history now. But Michael Phelps is a swimmer, 
So he doesn't have a regular platform except for once every four years through swimming. I'm just wondering, you know, I think he's going to be very marketable in many different ways from book deals to uh, personal speaking engagements, things like that. But is someone with Johnson & Johnson, how marketable do you think Michael Phelps is going to be in the future? I think, first of all, you have to take a step back and, and be awed by what he was able to accomplish. Sure. I mean, it's it's that much pressure and that much work in, in a short period of time to be able to to win all those goals is, is phenomenal. And, and then, you know, as I was saying before, you have to take a step back and decide for your business what makes the most sense. I know the Visa folks uh, have been working with him for a long time, and they love him. Um, we, we have a, a number of athletes that we work with that we're really, really happy with, but each business has to decide uh, whether that person helps drive to their objectives or not. And he's incredibly visible right now. He'll be incredibly visible as he's talking about going to London. So he will be on the scene over the next four years. And I think um, businesses will be excited to work with him and you know, sort of ride the connection of that fame as he heads towards London. I read somewhere that you may be working with his mother, Debbie. Is that uh, any truth to, to that report? Uh, yeah, our uh, our baby business, the campaign you talked about with um, Thanks Mom, uh, our baby business in the U.S. is working with uh, his mom or, around that campaign. I just want to ask you about the Olympic Green and your presence there. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe you can talk about that. I know it's unfortunate. You know, it sounds like there's some incredible structures there, but they're going to be torn down at the end of the Olympics. Uh, what are your thoughts on just the presence of the Olympic Green and then uh, this all going away at the end? Well, the Olympic Green is, is beautiful. The, the buildings that have been built there, both by the, the organizing committee and by the sponsors, are spectacular. And um, all the, the, a number of the sponsors have built showcases there, uh, including Johnson & Johnson, and we're really um, excited about the, the building that we've put up. Uh, a number of the sponsors are looking to try to make those buildings permanent. We're in the, in the middle of that process also. Um, they are a nice value add to the green, and we're hoping over the next couple of weeks that the the city of Beijing and the government of China will um, decide that they're they're just a great asset to keep on the Olympic green. Well, Owen Rankin with Johnson & Johnson, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. I appreciate it, Brian. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. We live in an age where everything is on the record. What we say anywhere, whether it's in an elevator, in an email, or during a conversation with a reporter, is now being broadcast instantaneously on YouTube, in a blog, or through the mass media. It's easier than ever to spot someone who has been traditionally media trained and is just giving you that same old boring PR speak. I want to help you navigate the tricky media landscape. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form Evergreen Media Training. Green Media Training assists individuals and groups by offering unique preparation and training catered to your specific needs. From explaining today's media environment to providing you with post-training monitoring and feedback, we'll guide you every step of the way. With nearly 40 years of combined experience working with some of the biggest names in the sports industry, we'll help you communicate your messages honestly, thoughtfully, and from the heart. For an overview and a list of services, visit evergreenmediatraining.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. Go on to my blog at sportsbusinessradio.com. You can read some good articles uh, that I found this week about the debate about Michael Phelps's marketability. But I'll tell you, NBC, as we've said repeatedly in the last few weeks, should be sending Michael Phelps a check for the great ratings that he brought them. And now 
They have signed on. You know, we talked about Michael Phelps. Will he have a platform? Because he's not an NBA player. He's not a pro golfer. He's not a pro tennis player. Uh, how often is he going to be on TV? How often is he going to be out there? I still think he's going to make a ton of money, but he doesn't have the regular platform that everyone has. Well, NBC this week signed deals to cover the 2009 World Swimming Championships in Rome, uh, also the 2009, 2010, and 2011 U.S. National Championships, and then they've already got the rights to the 2012 London Games. That's where the next Summer Olympics will be in London. And if that's not enough, Nathan... They're selling the Michael Phelps Greatest Olympic Champion, the Inside Story DVD. They had that thing ready to go as soon as he won gold medal number eight. Well, no offense to Michael Phelps. I think it's fantastic what he's done at the Olympics, and I'm a huge fan myself. But let's face it. Six months from now, everybody's going to forget about swimming because it, regardless if they have the 2009, 2010, 2011 Olympic swimming championships, it's not going to make a difference. People will remember Michael Phelps, but they're still not going to tune in. It happens every time with gymnastics and swimming at the Olympics. And then if you want to pay twenty nine ninety nine for the opening ceremony two-volume DVD, but if you pay that, just keep in mind and go onto my blog, read another article that I linked to. I think it was from the Washington Post that basically tells you about the treatment of the thousands of people that were involved with the opening ceremonies. And let's just say it wasn't very nice. All right, lots of thank yous on our show this week. Great guest, Owen Rankin from Johnson & Johnson. Our show staff, Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harris, and Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, Morton's The Steakhouse, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon, ProTrade.com, and Evergreen Media Training. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. You can download our podcast via your web browser or we'll link you directly to our iTunes podcast. Have a great weekend and we'll see you next week right here on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns. When people come to a Suns game, what kind of an experience do you want it to be for them? We want them to be entertained from the time they walk in to the time they leave. The co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, Gavin Maloof. Gavin, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brian. How are you? Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. Sports Business Radio. Saturday. That's why you're a smart business person. <laughs> or at sportsbusinessradio.com.